In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Think back for a moment when you were a child. Did your mom ever walk you or drive you to a friend's house or maybe a relative's over to grandma's or an aunt's and uncle's when you were little? Did she leave you with instructions before she, she knocked on the door? What kind of things did mom say? Be nice. Be nice. Play nice. Play nice. Right? Please and thank you. Please and thank you. Do we have the same mother? Yeah. <laughs> right? If you're going over to a friend's house, usually it would be now, listen to the adults there like you would listen to us. Like you'd, right? Hold on to those thoughts for just a minute. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners. Now over the last few weeks we've heard about how Isaiah was prophesying about what was to happen. Looking at a time when judgment has already taken place and the restoration of God's people is at hand. And look what God has appointed the Messiah to do. Bring good news to the oppressed. Bind up the brokenhearted, declare liberty to those in prison, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, comforting all who mourn, providing for those who mourn in Zion. He's coming to bring all of these things that we need to change our broken world and to heal and begin to change our own broken and hurting selves. Now the prophet here is preaching about the change that will happen to people who are returning from defeat, from judgment, to a land where they're going to have to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the other cities, where the temple has to be rebuilt and then rededicated. And God tells his people, I will change you. I'll give you a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, to display God's glory. Why? Because the Lord loves justice. The Lord's against robbery. He's against oppression. And he says he's going to make an everlasting covenant with them so that everyone will know that they are the Lord's by the blessings he puts on them. Hold on to that bit about Garland for a couple of moments. But Oaks of Righteousness has a ring to it, right? Especially here in Oaks. And how should the people respond? Isaiah says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation and covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Here we've got the garland again, right? In the ancient world, the garland was a marriage symbol, the wreath which was placed on the groom's head. We can read about it in the book of Proverbs and in history books. Think back to the garland for ashes that were mentioned just a few moments ago. What do the ashes represent? Death and repentance, right? When do we talk about ashes in church? Ash Wednesday, right? Funerals. Those times when we remember those things. And hopefully, it's the opposite of what marriage brings, right? Our wedding days are joyous occasions, and that's what God is promising here. That our sorrows will be turned to joy. That instead of feeling like we're at a funeral, we're going to feel like we're at a wedding. That is why we rejoice. Symbolically, it's the reason we use 
the pink or the rose-colored candle today, that in the midst of all of our preparations in Advent, as we prepare for the Lord's return, we stop and we rejoice in the goodness of God. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. This was going to go out and be not just in Jerusalem, but go out and be visible throughout the whole world. Oh, that the earth would show forth its springtime even today. The psalmist writes, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then we were like those who dream. The psalmist understands what Isaiah is saying. When the day came, when they went home, it was like being in a dream, like that day you've been waiting and hoping for. Back to that thought about a wedding day. When you talk to some people about their wedding day, what do they say the day was like? It was like a dream. I don't have good memories of it. It was like I was floating along. I was just so excited. That's the kind of feelings that are happening here. They don't really believe it's finally here and finally taking place. The laughter, the joy, I'm sure they had tears on that day. Last week, the psalmist wrote that when they returned, mercy and truth will meet together. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. And when the moment comes, that hope they had for their return, the peace they've been seeking, have come together in this moment. But then the psalmist cries out, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses of the Negev. There's more that still needs to happen. God has restored them, but now they need his provision, his protection. The tears they're crying that would be reaped with joy, listen. They know, like we know, that these allusions to planting and harvesting take time. You don't plant a seed in the morning and go out and harvest on the same day, do you? You plant, and you water, and you tend, and you wait. And sometimes you wait through the night, knowing that joy is going to come in the morning, waiting for the Messiah to come and to set all things right. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now we talked last week about how Mark begins with a simple declaration of who Jesus was, right? He's the Son of God, the Messiah. And like Mark, John does not begin with the manger or angels, not with Mary or Joseph or the nativity scene. John begins with a lyrical and almost philosophical beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overtake it. Beautiful. If you want to hear more about that, come back on Christmas Day at 10 a.m. But after his beginning with, like Mark, who does John go to? He goes to John the Baptist. For John, John the Baptist was sent to testify to the light, to be its first witness, to prepare the way. John the Baptist is asked questions by the leaders, right? It starts with, who are you? And why do they need to ask him that question? Because John was having and will continue to have a profound impact. I've told this story before, but 20 years later, after Jesus' resurrection, Paul ends up in Ephesus, way over in Turkey. He finds a group of people who'd been baptized by John the Baptist who'd never heard of Jesus. 
Today, there's a group called the Mandeans, some of whom moved from Iraq to New Jersey and Massachusetts in the 2000s. They believe that John was the last and the best prophet. They believed that for 2,000 years. And John's impact in those days meant that some people thought he was any one of a number of characters in prophecy. And what does John testify to? He starts by telling them, listen, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. When they ask them, who are you? John says, I'm the one Isaiah talked about. The one we talked about last week. The one who's come to make a straight path, to level mountains and fill valleys. And then he's asked, if you're none of these people, what gives you the right to baptize others? What gives you the right to call others to change? And he answers ever so simply, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, the one coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. John sees himself as the one coming to prepare the world for the Messiah. And we can be joyful because in John's Gospel, the Messiah is about to be revealed, but not quite yet. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now John the Baptist, Isaiah, even the psalmist have all been waiting. And we know that in John's case, he knows the Messiah is right there in the crowd. Maybe even listening on that day as they're coming to question him. But they wait. John's waiting for everything to be revealed. And here, after the Messiah comes, Paul talks about what the Thessalonians should be doing as they wait. Now Paul in this book has reassured them that Christ is coming for the living and the dead. And because of that great hope, he says we can be in a state of rejoicing. We can always be in a state of prayer given that we're waiting in a broken world. And we can give thanks no matter the circumstances. It sounds a little bit like the advice your mother would give you, right? Listen to so-and-so's parents, be home for dinner. But why is Paul doing this? Remember, Paul had to leave the Thessalonians quickly. He didn't get to teach them everything they needed to know. He was writing here to help them because they're scared, they're concerned. And now he's giving them simple advice. If you go and read this in the Greek, it's actually alliterations. The first letter, the first word in each of these verses from 16 to 22 starts with a P sound. So if we're doing this in Greek, it's all alliterative. It's all made so that they'll quickly remember it, right? Because when we don't read it in the Greek, it just sounds like a jumble of good advice, right? Dear Abby, how should I live my life? Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every for, or form of evil. I mean, that's good practical advice, right? The kind your mother would give you. The kind that's often easy to remember after many years. And yes, some of the advice our parents gives us aren't as useful or aren't as practical anymore. You know, I don't carry change in my pocket anymore in case I need to use a phone booth when I'm away from my parents. Can anyone tell me where the closest phone booth is that uses change this evening? All right, go ahead, Carrie. Okay, in Limerick at my sister-in-law's uh, mm -hmm. over 55 community, and okay. their, um, they have a pool. All right. Right outside, I have a picture of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the closest one anyone knows about is in Limerick, right? It's not at every gas station anymore. It's not at weird corners where you might need it, right? 
Mom, I'm running late. None of that stuff. I don't, we don't follow some of that advice anymore. But much of the advice I heard from my parents still stands. Be respectful. Be nice. Nothing good comes after 1 a.m., right? All good pieces of advice. And Paul's advice, rejoice, pray, give thanks, test, hold fast, abstain. Still good advice today. And it stands to us, like it did for the Thessalonians, of examples of what we should do as we wait. We wait with an attitude of thankfulness for all that God has done for us. We wait with an attitude of prayer, knowing that God will listen to us when we call out, knowing that he'll love us and forgive us. We wait with peace, knowing that God's promises are our hope in this world. And we wait with an attitude of joy, knowing that every moment, while every moment is not joyous, we're assured of what will happen in the end. Amen.